Hello, and welcome to episode 111 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Zachman from TennisAbstract.com, and today I am joined with Tim Bussler. He is the senior editor for Tennis Magazine, which is a German language publication. I know a few of my listeners speak both German and English, so you can get more out of the publication than I can with the help of, of Google Translate. Um, for those of you who aren't following along on the blog, I'm in the middle of the Tennis 128. I'm counting down the 128 best tennis players of the last century. And the one that I published today, number 123, I think, is Michael Stieck. And I wanted Tim to join me to talk about German tennis in the Michael Stieck era, Michael Stieck in particular. And we got lucky. He's spoken to Michael recently. So I know I'll have a lot of great insights about Michael Stieck. So, Tim, welcome. Hello. Thank you very much for joining you. Absolutely. I'm glad to finally have you on the show. I know we've been following each other on Twitter for years, and it's good to put a name and a voice and a podcast guest to the account. So let's start with, with setting the scene a little bit. Like when Reading about Michael Stieck when he first broke through in German tennis, uh, it was an exciting time. Boris Becker was winning slams. Steffi Graf was winning slams. And they really, they really captured the imagination of the German public. It seems like this was a, a really a golden era for German tennis. So, it, I mean, am I right about that? That they really got Germans excited about tennis in a way that they, they hadn't been for a while? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, these three players, Becker, Graf, Stich, they make tennis really, really big in Germany. But um, you don't have to forget um, that tennis in Germany uh, grows in particular just uh, at the beginning of the 80s and in the end of the 70s. And a lot of clubs and a lot of players join tennis during that time. In the middle of that, uh, suddenly Becker, 17 years old, won Wimbledon 1985. And that was uh, something like, it, was a, uh, it makes a development even faster. Before Becker, the, the clubs growing up, the, the, play, the amount of players growing bigger. And then Becker comes and everything was, was topped again. It was a real boom. Uh, after um, 1985, the next 10 years, there were the, the golden era of German tennis, no question. What do you think drove the boom in in all those clubs starting up in the late seventies and eighties? There was sort of a, a there was a global boom in tennis to some extent, but was there anything particular going on in Germany that caused that? No, I think it, it is a development that starts in the United States in the seventies, and uh, the wave uh, arrived in Germany during that time. And it's like a little bit uh, the, the population getting a little bit richer. And they wanted to not only soccer, not only normal sports and tennis was a little bit um, for the, the better ones in a, in a certain way. And so um, a lot of German joined the clubs because it was en vogue, just a, a feeling of the time to play tennis when you can afford it. Reading what Michael Sheik has to say about that era, he was complaining at the time that Becker got Becker was getting so much press, so much attention that there wasn't a lot of room left for for anyone else. Um, I mean, do you think that Michael Sheik got his got as much attention as he deserved, or was he just was he in the shadows too long because Boris Becker was just so popular? Uh, well, that's that's always a big question when you talk about the history of German tennis, and 
I mean, in a, in a certain way, shtick, he rises a lot of attention, but in the end, it was, it was uh, I think it was a benefit for him to stay more in the shadow of Becker because he could just do what he wants to do. Nobody was looking uh, at him and that was more his personality. He doesn't want to be uh, the, the whole tournament or the whole life to, to put in the spotlight of the publicity. And I think in a certain way, it, it helps him, it helped him that, that Becker owns all the attention, gets all the attention. And afterwards, when you look on, on his career from now, you think, well, uh, in a certain way, he deserved more attention <laughs> because it, it, everything was about Becker. And um, I mean, we had that big final Wimbledon 1991 when Stich win and won. And everybody was talking about something like an, uh, that was an insult of majesty, something like that, um, because everybody wants that, that Becker uh, gets his, his next Wimbledon title. And then he lost against a German. It was a lot of, um, oh, my God, I can't believe it. And it was only, only not, not, not many people was um, happy for Michael Stick to, to win uh, Wimbledon during that time. So it's a little bit strange. But um, that was the spirit in the German tennis during that time, yeah. I'm curious. I know that Michael Stieck has always had strong ties to Hamburg. He's still involved with the tournament there. And in, in the U.S., it seems like all the tennis players come from the same place. They're all, all in California or Florida. So there's not a lot of regional interest in, I mean, a lot of regional interest in specific players. Like if you're an American fan, you're rooting for all these people from California or Florida, no matter where you're from. But I wonder in, in Germany, is, is there some, is there some extent that players have fans based on the regions of Germany where they're from? Like it, would the attitude have been different in, in Hamburg when Stieg won the Wimbledon title than it was elsewhere in Germany? Yeah, that's right. Definitely. I mean, um, he's, he's from the Northern part of, uh, Germany, Stich. He was uh, growing up 50 kilometers away from from Hamburg, so he had a big relationship, especially to the tournament in Hamburg. And he has been the tournament director for 10 years after he retired. Until um, three years ago, there was a switch in the management, so now he's not the tournament director anymore. But he has a big relationship to Hamburg. That's that's for sure. And there was a very important match between Stich and Becker uh, one year after the Wimbledon final. They, they meet again in Hamburg. Uh, and during that time, that was the biggest uh, tennis court in Germany. And they met on that um, center court in Hamburg and Stich won 6-1, 6-1. He, he played unbelievable. Becker has no, no, no chance one moment where Becker was was going down on his knees and puts his hands together and he was something like, oh, Michael, please stop, please stop. <laughs> uh, you hurt me so much. And on the other side of the net, uh, Stick goes down on his knees as well. And he said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but what, what can I do? I'm playing so good today, something like that. <laughs> and, and our photographer, a tennis tennis magazine photographer he was standing um very high in the stands and he, he captured that situation and that was the the best um sports sport photo of the year in germany in that in that year 
And uh, that was an amazing situation. And the atmosphere during that match was pro-stich because it was in Hamburg and it's more like his hometown. When you come more to the southern part of Germany, it's all about Becker, Becker, Becker. Because Boris is from more from the southern part in Germany, I would guess during that time it was 80% pro Becker and 20% pro uh, Stich. Since since you mentioned Becker, the, the, well, we're mostly talking about Becker here, I guess. The 1991 final, I, someone calculated because the points were so short, they were both serving volleying a lot, that the ball was in play for a total of nine minutes uh, in like <laughs> a, a two-hour match. And normal during that time, sir. Yeah, exactly. It, it was normal during that time, especially with with Seek and Becker and, and Stefan Edberg. It was a lot of characters like that. And I found one quote from from Steek in 1991. He said, "High powered rackets are destroying tennis and making it really boring." When you saw McEnroe and Connors play at Wimbledon, that was real tennis. With the wide bodies, it will get worse. If it was up to me, I would go back to the old wooden rackets and play real tennis. And do you think do you think Steak would have been as good if or as successful if they'd gone back to wooden rackets and played real tennis? Okay, he was specialized in a certain way of playing serve and volley, of course. Uh, I talked with him um, four days ago, and we talked a lot about serve and volley. And um, uh, he said, I'm not really a serve and volley player, he said on his own. I'm an all-rounder. I, I played during my career 50% serve and volley, and it was good for me. It was it was one of my strengths, no question. But in the end... I have so much success on all surfaces because I'm an all-round player and not only serve and volley player. And that's that's very important for him. And I think when you watched him playing, he has such a clean technique. Uh, he, 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 he was uh, able to play anything, forehand, nice backhand, great volleys, good movement. And he was... Very, he was quite tall for for a player of his generation with a good serve, and I think it was um, he was a complete player, you can say. And so I would guess that he, um, when you ask if he can um, play on a high level again with the old rackets, I think definitely he can. Yeah. The matches I remember watching of his, or the ones I've looked back to, were I think on the faster surfaces where he was. I think it's safe to say he was serving volleying a lot more than 50%. I'll have to check what numbers the match charting project has, but I'm a little skeptical that he's served and volleyed so little. Uh, but I, I don't I don't disagree. He certainly had the, the all-around skills. And I, I mentioned that in, in my piece about Michael Sheik for the Tennis 128, that he has these records for winning on all surfaces. There's only... There's only seven players who won won tournaments on all four surfaces in two separate seasons. And the rest of that list is, it's unbelievable. It's, I mean, it's all time greats right up and down the list. And Seek was obviously very good, but you wouldn't really put him in the same category as Laver and Borg and and some of these other guys. So, so part of that, I mean, as you say, part of it, it seems like he was more of a well-rounded player than some of the other servant volleyers of that era. I mean, would you say he, he had a better all-around game or a better non-servant volley game than Becker did? Well, there's a, um, a very uh, popular um, quote from Pete Sampras. He once told, it was during um, the um, 
ATP World Championships. During that time, they, uh, they, they took place in Germany, in Frankfurt and in Hannover. And during one of these uh, tournaments, he said, when all the guys play best tennis they can play in one tournament, the best player will be Michael Stick. That was said by, by Pete Sampras to, to the German press. I mean, maybe we don't know how, uh, how, how we really believed in that, but it, was a, it is, a, it is a, a quite strong uh, quote, I think. I would agree with that, but he wasn't that hot in a certain way like Becker. He wasn't that hungry to, to win all he could win, maybe. And he was, he, for him, it was okay to, to play how he played and to win what he can win. But um, he doesn't want to be the best, whatever it takes or so. And I think that's the main difference between Becker and Stich. It's, it's not only about how much did the servant volley, how good was the forehand, the backhand. I think the main um, differences is within, in their head. Becker there- just wanted it more. Are there any players today who seem like they're in the same category as Zeke there, who are, 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 have a very high ceiling in terms of their performance, but maybe mentally they, they just don't care as much as some of the other guys? It's, it's difficult, I think, to, to get to this conclusion during the career still active and the player still playing. I think um, today Michael Stick is talking about himself like the way I, I told you a few minutes ago, but if you ask him these questions during his um, playing time, during his career, he never would have been agreed with that. I think it's sometimes, I don't know if, when, you, when you talk about um, the players we have at the moment, uh, for me, it's difficult to, to, to pick one of them. I don't think it's an easy question. I don't. I, I don't have any names in mind. Uh, I did find some some quotes during his career that he people knew that he wasn't a hundred percent focused on tennis in the way that other people were, and that's not a criticism. It's just that these other players who've been competing since they were twelve and it was their their entire lives, it, it was known that Stieck wasn't like that. He read a read philosophy. He was playing soccer until he he, he was sixteen right. or eighteen. Um, so, so he had more of a, it's tough to have a full life when you're a tennis professional, but he had more like a full life. And he talked about planning on retiring early. And it's, it's tough to imagine anyone talking like that today, at least someone who's winning slams. Maybe you can imagine Nick Kyrgios saying some of the same things, but (laughs) but that seems like an, an an unpleasant comparison for Stieck. I think we can do better than that. There's also one other important point because, uh, Michael Stieck, um, he always knows Okay, I'm I'm trying to uh, to compete on the as a professional on the tour, but when I um, when I'm not successful, I have no problems to get a good job on another way, and so there there wasn't that that pressure. Um, oh, I have to win! I have to win! I have to earn money. That has never been a, the fact for Stich because he 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 finished his school very good. And he, he was, um, he, um, during his junior times, he, he never has been something like a focus player in Germany. Um, he, was, he was a national junior champion in his last junior uh, year. That was his biggest success. But um, the years before, he was just playing in the club or in the regional federation. That, that's, that's all. And after he, um, he has been the national champion, 
for the uh, 18 years old, something of the uh, someone of the German Federation said to him, Michael, not bad. Maybe you can try it as a pro. And that was the first time he was he was uh, actually thinking about going on the tour. And um, two years ago, he he tried it, and that's just another background from from the players you can you you have today on the tour. Total totally different background. Yeah, you really can't imagine anyone not even realizing they could turn professional until they're 18, basically. That's, yeah. that's and, and it's not even that long ago. That's the crazy thing. It's We're yeah. talking about 30 years ago now. At that time, you already said Sheik was hardly the only servant volleyer. I mean, I'm not sure whether half of the tour was servant volleying, but a lot of the tour was servant volleying. And they were servant volleying on all surfaces. I mean, the people who serve and volley these days, they'll do it on hard courts. They back off a lot on, on slower courts. But he, his work, like, do you think, did he change his strategy on slower courts or how, how do you think, how do you think the game was different that you could have these guys who were such good servant volleyers and they were still so successful uh, doing so on, on slow clay? I talked about that with, with Michael a few days ago and um, he said um, for sure on the fast courts, especially on grass during that time, you can um, play servant volley the whole time. That's not that's that's not the question but on clay he he, he just mixed it up and he, he tried to um to play aggressive from from the baseline he, he tried to sometimes he, he he follows his service to the net but sometimes he stays on on the baseline and tried to um to build up a, a real attack and going to the net and finish the the point at the net some quote of him was um i never uh, really understand why I should play a ball 20 times over the net when I can win the point after six strokes at the net. So that was his um, his thinking to to come to the net, but not with not without preparation. You have to you you have to have uh, uh, the right basic strokes to come to a comfortable comfortable um, position at the net. And I think that's what uh, he plays on clay. He was an aggressive clay court player. During that time, um, you have, he, he was talking about 50% playing only serve and volley. And then you have all the, the Spanish players and South American players who play more from the baseline. And he told me that he hasn't had a chance on clay against the Spanish players to win against them from from the baseline, no chance for him. So he had to go to the net. That was a strange, but he he needs a good preparation to get the points at the net. Yeah, it seems like in the last thirty years, everyone's kind of turned into those Spanish players, right? Everyone can catch the ball from the baseline. So I, I know this. I know you're preparing a, a big story on serve and volley. So I don't. I don't. I don't want to ask you to give me all your good stuff, but maybe some of your good stuff. Uh, do you think that? that game can work. We've seen Maxime Cressy try to make it work. He had a good run at the Australian Open. Maybe there's some potential there. But if you if you take every player on tour as having one vote, there's like 99 votes against the servant volley and one vote for the servant volley. Um, and then maybe like 50 more votes from people who are in the commentary booth. But could it work? I mean, if you, if you took someone with Michael Sheik's talent, who's probably, I mean, probably better than Maxime Cressy is at serving volleying. If you transplanted him into tennis in 2022, like, could he still play the same game and have some success? Well, if you play the game like Stich, 
there's there is a chance for a player because it's important that you that you mix it up so that that your opponents never know what's coming next and that's maybe a little bit the disadvantage for Maxime Cressy i mean he was uh, in the in the last 16 which is a great success for him when he has to develop his game not playing every match every match 100% serve and volley because um I mean, I mean, we we know it. The players today, they have a great ability to return today. Even a player like Cressy, who has a good, a very good service, but when you play best of five, and you are in the in the third or in the fourth set, sometimes there is a point where the opponent can read your service, and that makes it even difficult, more difficult for a servant volleyer to get his games. I think for him. For a per, for a player like Cressy, it would be uh, on the long term, it would be more successful for him to mix it more and to surprise his opponent more and not follow every service to the net. And I think um, when you have a good balance, in a certain way, you have a, a plan B. When hundred uh, percent serve and volley doesn't work, and you can you can choose a little bit more and say okay. Now I'm staying a little bit more behind, and I'm preparing my attacks a little, uh, my attacks a little bit better. And when you have the strokes for that, I think then um, you, you you could have success as a player. I think so. Yeah, I don't know if you if you if you win Grand Slams or if you can be the the number one, but um, when you develop your game in this kind of direction, I think you 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 could you can have success today on the tour. Yeah. So you, you mentioned there just the value in mixing things up. And for Cressy, that might mean 50% serve and volley or 75% serve and volley. For a lot of other players, it feels like if you trust what the commentators say, any amount of serve and volleying would be better than what they do. And I, I saw you wrote an article a couple of years ago about Djokovic starting to serve and volley a little bit more. Um, for somebody like Djokovic, we might be talking about 10% or something like that. Would you think that like most players would benefit from... 10% serve and volley instead of 0% serve and volley? Or is is that just a few guys? What what do you think? Depends where you play and who is your opponent. A good example was the, 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 the final in Paris-Bercy last year when uh, Djokovic played against Medvedev and he was playing um, serve and volley. I checked it up on your... Um, on your website, Jeff, um, when he played nearly uh, 25% serve and volley during that match. And that was uh, that is huge for a player like Djokovic. I mean, nobody would have guessed that he plays 25% serve and volley in one match. As I said, it depends on the player and where you play. When you I think he, he, he can't play serve and volley, for example, on, on clay against... Nadal 25%. I think yeah. that, that, that wouldn't work. That, that wouldn't work. So in the end, I think there are more players who can benefit from that kind of game when you mix it up a little bit more. And when you, when you look at, at um, Nadal, for example, he has developed his game in that direction. When you, when you, when you think about his start, um, his, his beginning, in the um, 2003-2005, during that time, he was uh, a 100% baseline player. And today, he's, he's um, not really, an, an, I, I, don't, 
I wouldn't say he's an all-court player, but he has developed his game with um, more uh, aggressive elements, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, he's certainly gotten gotten more aggressive. And it, it almost seems like if anyone out there could benefit from more serve and volume, it might even be him because his his serves out yeah. wide are they're so wide and he's so strong right. with the net. I mean, it's tough to imagine him being the next guy to play like one in five points as serve and volley points, but you never know. Could happen. That'd be fun to watch. Maybe that'll be his way of extending yeah. his career another couple of years. Yeah, would would uh, help him not to to get the um Rally is a little bit shorter. <laughs> well, if, he, if he's going to win at uh, tour finals, he's going to have to do that, right? He'll have to adapt to an, an indoor surface a little better. And that's one way to do it. Sure. Yeah. One, one more thing I wanted to bring up about servant volleying is we're, we're having this conversation on, on Monday, the 14th yesterday, um, the, the tournament in Dallas just ended two days ago, Isner and Opelka just played this wild 24, 22, I think it was 24, 22 tie break in their semifinal and they're not serving volleyers. They do it occasionally, but I mean, it's basically serving nothing. <laughs> Thinking about the, about the tie breaks. It, I, I've done a little research in the past and found that in, in tie breaks points get longer. Players get a little bit more conservative. Um, they don't go for as many winners. They don't hit quite as many errors. So points get longer. And Steak, for instance, I think I just I just looked it up. He won 58% of his career tie breaks. Um, Cressy's around 50% at tour level. And it seems like you're you're playing Russian roulette a little bit when you're serving volleying. You always are, because with good returning opponents, like they can hit it past you. You have to accept the fact that you're going to be passed sometimes. And it's it's one thing to accept you'll be passed at you know, 30, 15 in the middle of a set, but to accept mm. you might be passed at four or five in the tie break. That's, that's tough. Um, and, and I wonder like for somebody like Cressy, he, his, his game is going to go to so many tie breaks, maybe not as many as Isner or Opelka, but he'll play a lot of tie breaks. It's, it's tough to convert those tie breaks consistently with, with serve and volleying. So I meant to turn this into a question. Like what's, what's the Michael Steak solution there? Do you, how do you change your game in tie breaks to, to deal with that when you have such a, such a sort of win or lose, take a chance gambling kind of style? I also made an interview with Maxime Cressy uh, one week ago. We had a connection um, to Dallas and we, we talked um, uh, via Zoom for, for half an hour. And um we spoke, of course, a lot of about serve and volley. And I was asking him something like the same question like you do. And he said, well, you, you have to think from the other way. And I mean, what do you mean the other way? Well, you have to think what, what the opponent has to do to win a point against me. He has, to, he has to hit a good return. And he said, yeah, and that's the point. The pressure is not on me. The pressure is on my opponent. He has to play. On every serve I get into the field, he has to play a good return. Otherwise, he's no, he knows I don't get the point. So the pressure is not on me. The pressure is on my opponent. You always have pressure as a, as a serve and volley player. So uh, because you have to hit a good serve. When, when you hit a normal serve or a, a bad serve, you know uh, the chances are getting low to win the point. So um, Stich has the same, the same thinking. He says... Um, when I when I going to the net ten times and I make six points, so I win the match. That is the thinking, and I think it's it's a question of your mindset. 
you have. Yeah, it's it's a mindset and 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 how you you build up your game. And I think you cannot uh, answer that question in general because if you look uh, to Opelka and Isner, they are instead of the big serve, they they are not very comfortable at the net. So it's it's not only about serving and then you go to the net and just uh, puts the volley away. That's that's not that easy. So even if you are a great server like these two guys, these two guys, and it's not uh, that easy to, to get a general answer on that question. That's interesting. And I mean, I love I, I love Cressy's attitude. I wish everyone on tour was a little bit more confident like that. Like in the last 15 years, we've heard so much of players talking about how great Federer and Nadal and Djokovic are. It's like, okay, well, fine. I agree. They're great. But maybe that's not what I want to hear from the number six player in the world or the number 26 player in the world. <laughs> like, why don't you tell me yeah. how you're going to beat them? Yeah. Cressy sounds like he he's ready to go. He's ready to go take on Djokovic as soon as Djokovic is back on court. It is. It is. Uh, I was growing up. I mean, I'm um, I'm in the middle of my 40s, and I'm I'm growing up with all these servant volley players when I was a junior, and um, for me, it's 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 just great to see a player to move forward and to have that attacking mindset and to who is who is hot to hit the volley during his way to the net, and it's just um, uh, great to watch for me, and I think it's uh, it's also a good contrast to all these baseline players you have. And I think a, a, a matchup between Medvedev and Cressy is just great to watch. It's it's like a battle of the systems or even uh, Nadal against Cressy in the Melbourne final in the ATP tournament Melbourne final was also a good match and a nice uh, matchup. Uh, for me, it's, it's just great to watch it, yeah. Back in 1992, um, Steak won the, the Wimbledon doubles final with John McEnroe. He won the Olympic oh, yeah. gold doubles with Boris Becker. And he played yeah. a fair amount of doubles and he was really good. And he won all basically all of his Davis Cup doubles as well. Um, do you think he would have been a good, I mean, if he decided to stick around longer in his career, maybe he couldn't, he didn't, he couldn't stay healthy enough to play singles, let's say. Do you think he would have been a strong full-time doubles player? Yeah, of course. He he was he he is um, something like I, I would say that he's he's really a, a perfect doubles player because, uh, as I said at the beginning, um, as an all rounder, he he can play everything. And the Olympic Games with with Becker that is an, a crucial moment in the career of both players because during that time they weren't really friends. You know, I mean they they were uh, rivals and. Uh, but for the Olympics, it said, okay, come on, let's try together. Let's make the best out of it. And there was an, an important uh, role from the, um, from the Davis Cup, from the German Davis Cup captain during that time. It was Niki Pilic. He said to them, guys, when you play together doubled and you both play nearly your best level, you can win the gold medal. So this is this is a chance to win a gold medal for Germany. Take that chance, and uh, no matter what has been before and what what will be afterwards, just one week, and at the end it was a gold medal. And um, it was interesting that these alpha players, these these big players, that they formed something like a community of purpose 
and won the gold medal. It was uh, a big achievement for both of them, but afterwards they didn't get friends anymore. So it, it was the same um, like before the gold medal. So it was just uh, these two weeks they settled together and worked out. Yeah. I, I meant to research this and never really got around to it. What what happened with those two? I mean, obviously they're competing for the same attention. They're competing for the same titles. They're very different people. But I mean, why is it that, that Becker and Stieg never really got along? Yeah, I think they were, were just too different, I think. And um, the other thing is Stieg was always in, in the shadow of Becker. We talked about that. And he has a little bit problems with that uh, because he, he was not getting the attention he would like to get in a certain way. And maybe he was a little bit more on his own and he, he wanted um, to uh, to come too close to Becker as as a friend. I think um, it's in a certain way, it's a clash of, of personalities. They are, they are really different people for Stich. It was a good choice to focus on his own career and don't gives too much attention to, to Boris in a certain way. Speaking of the personalities, and we've already talked a little bit about Stieg um, becoming the tournament director in Hamburg. It seems like he's really a natural for that kind of position. And, and it almost seems like people saw that coming when he was still in his playing career, that he's, he was very mature. He obviously, he, I mean, he finished school before, before his career. So he, he was in a position to, like you said, get, get a good job, not rely on just being an athlete his whole life. And it, it, it seems like of all the players of his generation, there's a few others who've, who've gone into similar tournament director or executive roles. Um, like a little later, James Blake and Tommy Haas come to mind as just sliding right into being tournament directors and looking the part and acting the part. Is it just that he has more education or is the personality? What is it that, that makes him fit in that kind of role i mean presumably he was effective as a tournament director like what what do you think sets him apart from some of the players who would never do something like that yeah well in 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 the case of stich it, it was um because he was uh, after his career career he was involved into um an uh sports marketing agency so he was uh, familiar with with that whole kind of business in a certain way and then he was a tournament director for 10 years in Hamburg. And of course, he was very good in talking with people, talking to people. And he, he, he could be very, very strong with his talking because he, 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 um, he always finds um, good words. He is very polite. And on the other hand, no question, he has a big tennis network in his background. So I think there, there are several um, aspects that are coming together. And for example, Stich was, was a very big uh, mentor for Alexander Zverev during his junior times. Uh, Zverev is also from Hamburg. So um, he was, he, he um, Stich was something like a mentor for him during his junior times. And uh, Stich was the one uh, who gave, um, Sascha a wild card for the tournament in Hamburg when 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 Sascha was 16 years old that was a, a big step for Sascha and um, unfortunately they they split it in a certain way because um, when Sascha was was getting more and more successful uh, he um, 
didn't play in Hamburg anymore. <laughs> that uh, Stich was not amused about that, and um, that's why they um, they split it in a certain way. But uh, I think Stich was was during um, the development of Sasha Zverev. Stich was a very important person for him. Helped him. Today, Stich is trying to find uh, something like a new rule in the German tennis. Um, there was something like uh, uh, rumors that he um, wanted to become the president of the German Tennis National Federation. And uh, he really wanted to try it. But um, you have to know that um, the National Federation in Germany is split into 18 regional under federations. And I think... He didn't get the support from these smaller federations who will um, vote for the president of the um, national federation. So he uh, he said, "Okay, I'm out. I'm not trying to to become the president." And there are a lot of people who who are um, frightened in a certain way to lose their jobs. That's always because Michael has uh, a lot of modern thinking and. Um, the old federation wasn't uh, ready for a, a modern president like Michael Stich. And so he didn't become um, the president of the German federation. But now um, he's more and more uh, present on um, TV, for example. You can hear him and see him on, um, on Sky. He's commentating there um, uh, Wimbledon, for example. And um, I think it's, it's, it's really nice to listen to him. Because um, he's not always saying the same things. You can hear that he knows the game very well. And it's really interesting to hear to him and to listen to him. And now he has um, his own podcast for, for everybody who is interested in. There's a new podcast starting uh, at the beginning of the year together with another uh, German player, Patrick Kühnen is his name a former Davis Cup um, captain from the German team and Kühnen and Stich, they have to, together now a nice podcast talking about actual developments on the tour and also about their life on the tour 30 years ago. You mentioned that that there's sort of an old guard in the, the German Federation at the, the, the provincial level and Michael Stich would have been more of a, a modern president. Like, do you feel like the German Federation is is a bit behind. I mean, right now we're, we've heard, we're hearing a lot about how strong the Italian system is. At least their results are great. I'm not sure whether it's because of anything particularly they're doing, but it seems like Italy's the one who seems to be doing everything right. And you don't hear as much about what's going on in federation level in Germany. So, so what do you think about what's going on there? It's a hard question because um, the system in Germany is, is, it's not that easy to understand. You have to, to know that all the, um, uh, decisions, the important decisions, they are made on a on a lower level on the regional federations. So every every regional federation has its own system to um, to support younger players, and um, they have something like regional um, centers where they uh, practice these young talents, and it's it takes a lot of time. They have to be like uh, 13, 14 years old. And in that time, there are nationwide meetings 
where the where the where the best players of their age groups they meet for for a week or so and practice together with with the national coaches and afterwards they are going back to their regional federations and um practice there again i don't know really or i have i have my doubts if this system is still really the best way to get good players actually and uh, you can you can see um in germany there are a lot of players who who make their breakthrough on their own without the federation if you if you take dominic Köpfer, he 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 played a lot of college tennis in the united states for example and sasha zverev was in a certain way part of the of the federation but he gets all the support from his parents and the german federation um was not that involved into sasha zverev to be honest and the german federation is good to to build up a certain standard for for good players but it's not enough to get really the high quality players to get this you have to do it on your own without the federation so the hard even harder question then is how does the federation need to change to deal with that i mean do you do you throw more money at a at a smaller number of players or get everybody together at one national center or what do you think they are trying to get better actually you 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 have to admit that but they are trying to get involved into the coaching system more former players they are players like uh, annalena grunefeld there's jasmin ver also a good doubles players there is uh, bjorn pau he was a good singles player top 100 there's philip petschner uh, a two-time doubles grand slam champion and these kind of players they um they are working now for the uh, federation not only for for regional federation for the national federation and they they're trying to to get the best player of the several age groups more often together and uh, that the the best players of the whole country gets more um mixed up with each other you you often have these these regional kings for example there's a a 16 years old who wants everything in in his regional federation and as soon as he as he gets to the national um on na- on the national level he's not winning um not everything anymore and i think um the german federation understands that he has to get fit for the for the future and to get more modern and they are on a way now um we have to wait what's what's coming next i think we had a especially in, on the women's side germany has a have a great uh, last years with with kerber with petkovic lisiki julia gorges a lot of good players and now there's coming really a gap on the women's side we have for example um a very important cooperation with with Porsche they have talented teams they have junior teams they they supported the the Fed Cup team and so on and there's on this side i think there's a good structure to to get new good players and actually there is a 14 year old german uh, girl julia susek she won um very famous tournament le petit as in tarp 
at the end of um, January, and she's only the the third girl of Germany who won that title actually. And the last was uh, Heike Rusch, more than thirty uh, years ago. So I think there's talented players in Germany, and we have to to wait now a little bit how they can get really to the uh, to the top. Okay, well, that feels like a good note to end on. We've solved many of the problems of German tennis right here. So I, I, I've been speaking with Tim Bustler. Uh, he's the senior editor of Tennis Magazine in, in Germany. You can follow him on Twitter. I'll post the, the link. Just your name, right? Tw um, Tim Bustler. Yep, on Twitter. So make sure to follow him there. Uh, we've been talking about Michael Stieck, who's the 123rd player of my tennis, 128. So, Tim, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much. Has been a pleasure. Hopefully we'll have reason to do it again next time we're ready to talk some German tennis. So this has been episode 111 of the Tennis Abstract Podcast. Uh, thanks everyone for listening and I'll see you next time.